Welcome to Season 3 of American Political History, Conformity, War, and Liberty, Soul Liberty. Well, Williams was at sea traveling to London. The four New England Puritan colonies, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Plymouth, and Connecticut, would join into an alliance, the United Colonies. This alliance purposely excluded Rhode Island. And then there was a rumor that got to the Bay's ears that Sachem Myantonomi was trying to organize a general uprising against the English. It was said that he had already talked with the Montuck Sachems of Long Island, saying, like the Pequot had six years before, So are we all Indians? Do we say brother unto one another? So must we be as the English are together, otherwise we shall be gone shortly. When asked, Sachem Myantonomi denied all such rumors and immediately suspected that Sachem Uncas of the Mohicans was the source of these reports and rumors. Sachem Myantonomi took his personal attaché of warriors and attacked Uncas's village directly. But his attack was rebuffed, and Myantonomi was captured by Sachem Uncas. Uncas demanded an enormous ransom from the Narragansett for their prince, and they paid it. But then, instead of releasing him, Sachem Uncas asked the United Colonies for guidance. A court was called in Boston to review this request. It unanimously decided it would not be safe to give Myantonomi his liberty, nor did they have sufficient evidence to put him to death. The court sought the guidance of the clergy of New England. The clergy decided they had scriptural grounds to put him to death. He had attempted to likely murder Uncas. But those grounds didn't give the United Colonies the right to put him to death. It only gave Sachem Uncas the justified grounds to put Sachem Myantonomi to death. For Uncas was the offended party. So Sachem Uncas, with a few Mohican warriors and two English friends, went into a nearby forest where they unceremoniously beheaded Sachem Myantonomi for his crimes. The Narragansett, after just having paid a princely ransom to the Mohicans, was in no position of strength to respond to the aggression especially with the Mohican support of the United Colonies. Meanwhile, in Rhode Island, Benedict Arnold took advantage of the news of Sachem Myantonomi's death to immediately buy lands from lower-ranking Sachems of the Narragansett, specifically the lands where Gorton had set up his new settlement. The English would often buy already sold lands from lower-ranking Sachems of a nation. Then they would take these land contracts to English courts. And why wouldn't the native sachems, who would be totally willing to take additional payments for lands they knew had already been sold to the English, what did it matter to them if the English wanted to fight over those lands some more? They were already sold. Arnold had these sachems sign testimony of sales to him and submitted this testimony to the Bay's courts. The Bay's used this petition from Arnold as the authority to claim legal right over the Rhode Island region. Plymouth, piled on to this opportunity by claiming lands of their own on the east side of Rhode Island, and Connecticut made claims to the northwest. Now that the Bay felt it had full legal authority over Rhode Island, the next general court would address the Gorton issue, who the Bay abhorred. They summoned Gorton to testify in Boston. Gorton responded that he rejected their claim of authority over a territory where he lived, saying the Bay was full of pride about themselves. So the Bay sent 40 militiamen to capture all of the Gordonists settled in Rhode Island. Those militiamen marched through Providence without requesting passage. This symbolic act of supremacy outraged the population of Providence. But the town with a population of around 200 total could take little direct action against 40 trained and armed militiamen. 
The Bay's militia found Gorton hauled up in his fortified house. Gorton was objecting to this arrest, and he vigorously objected to the idea that the militia were being paid for whatever they could plunder from his followers' possessions. He said that this advanced payment order proved the Bay had already thought them all guilty, so why would they willingly go to this supposed trial? Gunfire was exchanged, but once the militia realized the house had been fortified to be musket-proof, they sieged the house for 40 days, trying at times to set it on fire, but the weather had other ideas. At the edge of starvation, Gordon and his followers finally surrendered. The Bay Courts charged Gordon with blasphemy, thus the court, even in Boston, was now the offended party of Gordon's actions. This court was the jury and judge. Gordon demanded the right of appeal to England, but the Bay Court rejected this appeal. So Gordon's group refused to recognize the court and would say nothing during court proceedings. The Bay Court ordered them to testify or face pain of death. They still refused to answer. The Bay Court would send clergy to talk to them individually about penance and conformity. After that failed to change their minds, the court would record its attempts to get cooperation for the trial, and because of the lack of cooperation, it was now set free to sentence those in question without their testimony. The court sentenced Gorton and his followers to work in irons. The punishment would last, in Puritan fashion, for the pleasure of the court always leaving the door open for conformity so that the punishment could then become lighter for you. Then the court dispossessed Gordon and his followers of their lands and awarded those lands to the Arnold family. And very quickly, settlers from the Bay purchased those lands from the Arnold family. Meanwhile, Williams arrived in England in 1643, in the middle of the English Civil War. And the Bay already had two lobbyists well-established in court circles, Thomas Weld and Hugh Peter, Thomas Weld had cross-examined Williams at his banishment trial, and Hugh Peter, well, we talked about his conformity of Salem. They were in stalwart opposition to Williams and his freedom of conscience idea. The two lobbyists were in London because the Civil War greatly reduced both immigration to New England and investment from London. King Charles and Laud had generated the great exodus of Puritans from England to New England. But with the Puritan Parliament now in power, English Puritans saw no reason to flee to the New World, where most people lived in what would be considered poverty in England. Many Puritans had even started to return from New England back to England. Beyond this opposition, William faced a power vacuum in the Civil War. No one was available to give him a charter even if they wanted to. Eventually, Parliament would establish a Committee on English Plantations, known as Colonies today giving it authority over all English plantations. Thomas Weld already was seeking through this committee to expand the Boston Charter to include Rhode Island. Weld lobbied the committee members for this expansion. He got eight of the members of that committee to sign his new charter. Then he dated the paperwork so that it seemed it had been passed through the committee. This document would become known as the Narragansett Patent. But for any parliamentary committee to pass a new law or document, that document had to pass the table, or be reviewed in committee, where a majority had to pass the legislation, and this majority must include the sitting chair of the committee. In other words, the committee chair also had veto power over any legislation. Then a document would be signed and given all of the appropriate seals of parliamentary authority. Weld made two mistakes with his Narragansett patent. Nine members was a majority, not eight. And Weld clumsily dated the approval for the Narragansett patent on the Sabbath day, a Sunday. The Puritan members of Parliament would never desecrate the Sabbath day with such ordinary political bureaucracy. 
none of Weld's actions were technically illegal. But having done it this way, the Narragansett patent would never hold up in any English court. None of this stopped Weld from sending it back to New England where Bay Courts could rule it lawful, 3,000 miles away from any possible appeal in an English court in London. While Williams waited for his turn in Parliament, he inserted himself into the debate of the newly reformed Church of England. For if his ideas on separation of church and state were valid, then they should be valid everywhere. A parliamentary assembly was convened to discuss the religious laws moving forward in England. This assembly was filled with clergy, including placeholder positions for John Cotton and Thomas Hooker. This parliamentary assembly decided that church attendance would remain mandatory. English's theology would be Calvinist. England would continue to have a national church, and the legal model of the church would be based on that of ancient Israel, where the state and church were intimately woven. The only contentious issue was over the role of government to support the church governance and discipline. Many in Parliament preferred to keep the structure of the Church of England, though this was difficult because they had already abolished the structure of bishops within the church. Who and what would replace them now became the real issue. With the examples of King James and Charles using the church itself to carry out their governmental wishes, this topic became more and more important than just simple church processes. It became a struggle for the true control of the politics in London. Then the issue changed to what the appropriate level of toleration before church discipline was needed, which again became a political issue of power. Williams began to attend the assembly daily and would publicly argue for the freedom of conscience. Henry Vane would ask in Parliament, Why should any be oppressed if they seek God? Vane was just arguing for simple toleration. Williams wanted freedom of conscience, and this ideology was beyond anything anyone in Parliament in England wished for. For Williams, the events in New England, of the Bay showing its authoritarian spread of their vision of acceptable Christianity, showed Williams that the cost of repressing religion was not just crushing the freedom of conscience, it was crushing individuals' relationship with God. To protect freedom of conscience, William would now start aiming even higher, at political freedom. Then, someone anonymously published John Cotton's writings right after Williams got banished. In those writings, John Cotton was overly harsh to Williams, even telling him that if he dies, it was his own fault. This exposed the lie to the narrative that the Bay had been telling, that they were religiously tolerant of their fellow Christians, that they went out of their way to get them back into the flock. Public happenings and news between England and New England spread fast. Within months, everyone in England had heard about the Bay's marching militias through Providence, the show trial for Gorton, and the rejection of Gorton's appeal to English courts, which was his right under English common law. Williams would write his own pamphlets, making his and Rhode Island's plight against the hypocrisy and authority of the Bay headline news to everyone in London. Williams spoke his outrage that he had been denied the common air to breathe in and a civil cohabitation on the same common earth. Ye, without mercy of human compassion, be exposed to winter's miseries and a harrowing wilderness death. Williams furthered that John Cotton claimed that Williams had received a just civil sentence from the state. Was the hypocrisy of condemning Williams for only the charge of not exclusively conforming to the New England way of Christianity? 
His sentence was exactly the same as Lod's type of sentences, which had spread so much suffering in the Puritan world. That this corruption of state power and religious belief led to the Bays legislating even a man's home. Remember, the English Civil War circled around the common law belief that a man's home was his castle, and his home was not even subject to the king's will. Williams would detail how, once the wall of separation of church and state is broken, the garden of God is no different than the wilderness of man. When they have opened a gap in the hedge or wall of separation between the garden of church and the wilderness of world, God had even broke down the wall itself, remove the candlestick, etc., and make his garden a wilderness. The mixing of the heavenly church with the state's human corruption inevitably corrupts the church and God's garden's purity. When one mixes religion and politics, one simply gets politics. This new approach would set the pillar of the philosophy Williams would fight for, and he would call this new approach soul liberty. Thank you for listening to this episode of American Political History. If you want to support the show, please subscribe and leave a five-star rating and share this show with someone you think would enjoy listening. Thank you again, and until next time.